0: I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, go to our webpage, that's Ithinkthereforeifan.com, all one word, click on the link that says Donate, and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. Spoiler warning time! In this episode, we discuss Freaky Friday, Gremlins, The Simpsons, Westworld, Star Trek, Bing John Malkovich, Gilligan's Island, All of Me, The Avengers, The Prestige, Us, True Detective, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and Pet Cemetery. You've been
1: warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts.
0: I'm Dr. Richard Green.
1: And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison-Green.
0: Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. So today we're talking about the philosophical issue or set of issues surrounding personal identity, right, this idea that, um, you know, things endure over time, they remain the same thing, um, at least, you know, for, for long periods of time, even though they undergo changes and so forth. So number of um, really sort of interesting philosophical puzzles center around this, um, brings out lots of interesting issues in philosophy of mind, as well as metaphysics. And um, this is area that's that's well covered in pop culture so um, let's let's start by just kind of setting it up a little bit.
1: Sure so we can introduce the the general problem of persistence through time and change by talking about persistence of objects rather than persistence of persons and um, I think there are some important um, differences between those two questions which we'll talk about in a minute but it's easiest to get a grip on the nature of the question when you talk about objects. So uh, the standard case to introduce this topic is the ship of Theseus. Okay? So you can imagine a ship departing from a dock on a long voyage. And you can imagine that throughout the course of this voyage, the ship begins to fall apart. That every bit of the ship, planks and nails and, and all, all of the elements of the ship fall away to the bottom of the sea uh, bit by bit. But this happens over a long course of time, um, and as each bit of the ship falls away, it's replaced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, the ship concludes its voyage. So you can imagine that there's a ship that concludes the voyage, but that also one could, uh, in, in some sort of sci-fi way, using technology, uh Bring up all of the pieces from the bottom of the sea and reconstruct. Well, that's the real question, I guess, but mm-hmm. construct a ship uh, out of the the pieces that have fallen to the to the bottom of the sea.
0: Yeah, I, I always like to imagine that some sort of greedy scavenger company is following them behind, and they grab the pieces <laughs> like, and fine, carefully fine. preserve them before <laughs> before they even get. Um, ...altered or weather-beaten or okay. ruined in any way.
1: Right. And then so you've reconstructed the ship. And the question is, which of these two ships, if either of them, uh, is the ship of Theseus?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah, no. go ahead. Uh. So, yeah, so the, the the first one was christened the ship of Theseus. And I think, you know, you take a nail out um, and replace it with another one. Most people have the intuition that it's still the same ship, right? And you can just do this throughout, right? It, it continues to be the same ship, um, all the way till the end. Um, you know, changing a part shouldn't be sufficient to make it a different thing. I mean, it's controversial, and we'll talk about some different views. Um, but yeah, go back. So you've got the, the, the original parts all put together.
1: Right, and so now you've got these two ships, and the question is, which one of either of them is the ship of Theseus? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that uh, the, the fact that I think the answer is not, uh, not clear at all um, just highlights the philosophical depth of this problem mm-hmm. um, and when when we take a look at the, you might think oh that doesn't matter too much now i i think uh, there are reasons to think that it matters um in our day-to-day lives so for example um we 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 are committed to uh things like property rights well if there's going to be such a thing as a as property rights to an object or to a bit of land it has to be the case that's the same object or a bit of land. Let's say that we we uh, arrived at these property rights through some sort of contractarian process, where the social contract gets us ownership or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, in order for us to retain the the property rights to whatever it is, it better be the case that it's the same thing that we agreed to in the contract situation, right? So, I mean, I think there are plenty of reasons to think that this question matters when it comes to objects, but you might think that it matters even more so when it comes to persons. Right, uh, right. Because after all, in a sense, we're no different from the ship of Theseus. That all, since the time we were born, all of our cells have died and have been regenerated. And uh, so, so the physical material um, that we're built out of is, is different. Um, uh, and so one might ask, are, are we the same? Mm-hmm. Um, our psychologies have changed dramatically. Hopefully, we don't have the same beliefs and desires that we had when we were infants. Mm-hmm. Right. So and then the question becomes, in virtue of what, if anything, are we the same people that we were when we were born?
0: Right. Yeah. And also, none of our, our physical parts remain. You know, after so many years, every cell is regenerated and so forth. Um, so going back to the, the property rights case, my students will often sort of say, you know, as soon as that ship changed, it's a different ship. And I'll say something like, do you have a car? And they'll say yes. And it says, you know, anything different about the car? Do you put in a new spark plug or, you know, um, replace the battery? And they say yes. And you say, well, great. Um, by your lights, it's a different thing. So you won't object to my going down to the parking lot and taking it home because it's no longer you, um, yours. And they'll say, no, no, no. There's there's something about it that's the same. So with, with persons, um, what is that thing, right? Um, if, if it's not... Your sets of desires um, your basic character any of your physical parts right? it seems like perhaps there's there's nothing now some some people have a response to this
1: before we lo- launch into the responses can I sure can sure. I briefly I, I want to say a lo- a, a, I want to say a few things about why I think this really matters um, oh yeah, yeah. I, so before we try to try to solve it which Spoiler alert, we're not going to...
0: Oh, no, we always solve these things. <laughs> Fake spoiler alert. All philosophical problems will get solved by the end of this podcast's life.
1: Um, <laughs> Great, that's good to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, so I think, um, among other things... Well, maybe I'll start with this one. I think it's hugely existentially important for people <laughs> that they remain the same through time. I mean, if you don't feel a sense of continuity with your both your past uh, and your future, future self, mm-hmm. then uh, that can be pretty distressing, I think. Uh, it can be a, a motivation issue. Like, after all, if it's not, if it doesn't make sense for me to anticipate the experiences of some future being as my own experiences, then then why should I be motivated to do anything at all? Um, why should I feel guilty or sh- feel shame about my past wrongdoings if um, if that person wasn't me? Right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think... Uh, having this overarching narrative about uh, one's identity is important to one's sense of meaning in life and uh, one's conception of who they are and what matters to them, right? So it matters on an existential level. I also think it matters quite a bit in terms of our ordinary practices of holding people responsible, right? So... Um, let's say that I'm angry with you for something that you said on Tuesday, which I'm of course, of course I'm not, cause you're always wonderful. But, mm-hmm. uh, if, if, if it would be, would it make sense for me to be angry with you for what you said on Tuesday? If you're not the same person that said something. And, and on if Tuesday? you're not, it
0: would be two right. different people having an argument yeah. about being, being
1: angry about some something that doing. happened to totally different people in the past. And I think, you know, that those are just our day to day holding people accountable types of judgments, but. We also, of course, th- there are more severe actions that we take, more extreme actions that we take related to this. So, for example, we put people in prison. We execute people. Mm-hmm. When I introduce this this issue in my class, I'll, I'll frequently talk about um, the Manson family and I'll raise um, the, the example of... Um, one of the Manson family members, and I'm all of a sudden gapping on which one, but it it doesn't really matter, Um, getting denied parole Mm -hmm. um, when she was up for parole. Well, she was granted parole by the parole board and then denied by the governor. Um,
0: And she was originally convicted in 1970.
1: Yeah, crime committed in 1969.
0: 69, and the convictions came within a year or two.
1: Yeah. So, so, um, oh, I think it was Leslie Van Houten. So, 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 uh, you want her. So this has now been so many years later. She's been a model prisoner at the time when she committed the crime. She was under the influence of drugs. She was under the influence of a manipulative psychopath and she was 19 years old. Right. I mean, so, uh, which is a form of craziness in itself.
0: Quick warning, (laughs) kids. Don't do drugs. <laughs> don't, don't don't do psychopaths. And and don't be a teenager. If you can avoid all those, your your life will be much better. We love
1: teenagers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> kind of. <No. laughs> um, so yeah. So I mean, I I introduced this issue to say, look. When enough things have changed about her, it, is it even reasonable to say that she's the same person? I'll also bring up cases of, like, um, dementia patients, right? When somebody is in an advanced stage of dementia, should we – let's say that they've, it, they've, ish, um, they've put together an, ad, uh, an advanced directive uh, concerning what should happen to them were they to get dementia. Should we even take that advanced directive seriously, mm-hmm. um, given that now they seem to have totally different mental characteristics, Right? right? So, I mean, there there are real, this isn't just theoretical, like, this isn't just a philosophical question that has no bearing on the real world, but it's fun to think about. There, there are lots of practical implications for how we resolve this question.
0: Okay, so one response to all of these problems, um, problems of personal identity, is to just take the line that the dualist takes, right? And dualism is the view that um, you know, humans have sort of two parts, right? They have a physical part and a non-physical part. And it's the, the non-physical part. It you know, could be, on some views, our soul or spirit or mind. Some, some views combine all these. That's the thing that survives, right? So my character changes, my um, personality changes, my desires change, my physical makeup changes. But my soul goes unchanged, right, throughout time. Um, and in fact, on you know, many dualist views, um, even survives my death, right? It's the thing that, that once it exists, it just continues to exist until um, God deems it unworthy of, of further existence. Um, so that, that makes it easy, right? And that solves the problem. Um, the, the worry, of course, is um, lots of people are very dubious of the idea of non-physical substance, right? Philosophically... It's it's nearly indefensible, right? There's there's no reason to suppose it exists. There's there's no evidence for it. Um, doesn't seem to jibe with um, any of our um, scientific discoveries about the nature of physical objects and so forth. Um, and and we can account for you know changes in mental phenomena um, in scientific ways by talking about you know. Changes to the brain. Yeah, mm-hmm. You add chemicals, they make you happier. You take away chemicals, you get sadder. Um, and so forth.
1: So I always bring up to my students the case of Phineas Gage, uh, who surprisingly, you know, that they may not know, that my students may not know the geography of Africa or whatever, but all of them know about Phineas Gage already. <laughs> it's, it's an odd, like, commonly known fact. This guy who had a railroad spike, Uh, kind of exploded up through his head and, and, uh, he survived it stunningly, but his personality changed dramatically. You wouldn't expect that to be the case if, um, your, your non-physical soul was what really accounted for who you are. Mm -hmm. And of course that's just one kind of extreme example, but we see things, we see examples of this all the time. Um, when there are changes to the brain, Mm -hmm. right. When there's brain trauma, um, so you would expect that the, the, the personality would just remain intact. A lot of people who want to say you are your soul want to associate personality with soul as well. Right,
0: um, right. Uh, the real you. Right. So to speak. Um, yeah, so dualism, you know, if, if you've got that view, um, great. If not, it's, it's sort of a non-starter Right. I want to raise a couple
1: of other problems for, for the dualist view, too. And oh, I, please. Th- this isn't to say that, um, that that dualism is wrong. We're not actually suggesting... I, I don't think positing any definite solutions here um, or ruling any out. But uh, I'll just raise a couple of other concerns. So in addition to the like redundancy that the brain seems to be um, doing all the things that we're attributing to the soul, um, you've also got the issue that... Um, It's difficult to explain how, um, soul body interaction could occur given that the soul is non-physical and the body is physical, Mm -hmm. um... Uh, and what's also a concern and, and, this, some of my considerations here come from this great, uh, little book that I'll recommend. It's called a dialogue on personal identity and immortality by John Perry, mm-hmm. it's just a short little read. And it's, a uh, it's written in dialogue form for my students listening. They're familiar with it because I've read it. Um, but, or they should have read it. Um, but it's in dialogue form and it makes the whole personal identity debate just really easy to digest. I think, um, Because in dialogue form, it raises what the objections are and so forth. And one of the main objections that's raised for the soul view of identity is um, that it would make our ability to judge one another as the same person, you know, as the same people that we've interacted with in the past, pretty mysterious, Mm -hmm. right? Because if what identity of um, persons consists in is identity of immaterial souls, well, I can't, I can't apprehend by you know by definition your soul is non-physical and i can't apprehend it with any of my senses so there's no way for me to judge that you have the same soul that you had last week
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and even if i were to um uh, say sure such things as souls exist i would have no way of r- ruling out that god hasn't made you know isn't trying a fun trick and hasn't made a new copy of your soul every five minutes and 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 has replaced your soul like even if even if you want to appeal to something like um, consistency of of psychological characteristics Mm -hmm. saying well no he's got the same soul because he's behaving in the same way well you'd you'd be behaving in the same way if you had a copy of your soul replaced every five minutes and there's no way for me to tell and what's more there's no way for you to tell
0: right right good and another sort of worry about that is, you know, we, we do change over time. So you, mm-hmm. you could think of this sort of swapping out of souls as um, this, you know, analogous to kind of a temporal um, game of telephone, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever I had when I was a newborn in terms of personality and character mm-hmm. is nothing like my, you know, now, what am I, 37 or <laughs> f- 57 or something year old self, right? So you, it would be, you know, almost as if God were plugging in this thing that we're sort of close to the one, and then a few moments later, close to the next one, and close to the yeah. next one. And you can, you can see something like continuity. Um, but, but there's certainly um, nothing that was there when I was younger, right? Even eight or 10 year old me that, that's part of my personality now.
1: Um, right. And so that, that makes appeal to the soul to solve this problem a little strange because you might think that that, it, that just pushes the question back one step. Well, then what is it that makes your soul the same soul from one moment to the next? Given if you're associating psychological characteristics with soul, well, then mm-hmm. <laughs> your soul clearly has changed from when you were a child.
0: Exactly. OK, okay great. So other solutions then.
1: OK, um, one other solution is to appeal to the body. Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course the question is going to become uh, which element of the body presumably if I chop off my foot I'm still the same person so I think a lot of people are inclined to identify it uh, with the brain and nervous system One objection to the body view is some is to raise like Descartes did something like the conceivability argument which is something like this it's I can conceive of myself existing independently from my body. Therefore it's possible Mm -hmm. that I, that I could exist independently from my body. And I think uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, but I think that in, in pop culture, we make use of this, the conceivability of this concept, uh, in a wide range of circumstances. So we help ourselves to it uh, in all sorts of storylines. So one that I'm just thinking of offhand is like Freaky Friday, the various incarnations of Freaky Friday, where the mom and the daughter or whomever switch bodies. And so clearly this is intelligible to us. It's not Mm -hmm. as if we can't comprehend what's going on here. Um, And I think it probably does rely on some sort of, uh, Cultural understanding of dualism Mm -hmm. um, because, oh, okay, well, the spirit of one just went into the other or something like that. Um, But then the challenge becomes, well, wait, are you really conceiving of it? Uh, Mm -hmm. To use an example that my student brought up in class the other day, I can picture myself possessing this chair. Does that mean I can really possess a chair? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it's useful for us to be able to imagine hypotheticals as human beings, right? That's 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 been evolutionarily advantageous. But some hypotheticals are nonsense,
0: mm-hmm. right? Right, right, <laughs> so, right.
1: Um, so they shouldn't all be instructive as to the actual nature of reality, right? What, mm-hmm. what we can imagine. Um, so, so then, I think uh, the plausibility of the body view. <clears throat> isn't undermined by this conceivability issue. Um, then there, the issue, one of the issues for the for the body view is, of course, the regeneration of cells. But you had some other considerations related right. to the body view.
0: So so Parfit has this interesting puzzle. So and this is a you know something that's that's conceivable but not possible, but I'm certainly getting close to to possible. Right. So we've got these sort of fission cases. We can now sever the corpus callosum. And get get two sort of distinct minds going temporarily, at least you know such that one consciousness doesn't know what the other one's doing. Um, okay, so you know it, it shouldn't be long before we could you know sever um, somebody's brain into its two two hemispheres and um, do brain transplants. So you're asked to imagine that. Um, there's a, a person the, the brain is severed it's transplanted into a different body that um, has all the same memories it's hooked up in such a way it can control the body you just say that's the same person it's just a brain transplant they're in a they're in a different body now a variation on that would be you you sever the brain and um, just throw away one side um, put the other side in the new body again has all the, the memories Um... And we're still sort of inclined to say that's the same person, or you could do it the other way, right? If it was the right side the first time, then the next time you you put the left side in the new body, and it's the same person. So we have this, this idea that the person persists through time, survives these sorts of changes. Um, but what about a case where you um, split the two hemispheres of the brain and put them in two separate people, right? And I, I think Parfit doesn't think there's a, a right answer to this. Um, in terms of personal identity, exactly. Um, But you you can't say they're both the same person, right? You can't have two distinct things being numerically identical, right? Which means being Mm -hmm. one and the same thing. Mm -hmm. They would have different properties. One would be at the zoo, the other would be at the park, and so forth. Um, And yeah, you mentioned the Freaky Friday type cases. Some of these kind of trade on this idea, right? There it's usually just somebody's soul or spirit, is mm-hmm. put into someone mm-hmm. else. And we don't know how that's conceivable. But we, but we do kind of know how putting someone's brain in another body could happen. It's it's conceivable in a way that, that seems um, like it will, you know, in 50 or 100 years, just kind of be an easy operation. Um,
1: I would bring up that, that we do have some elements of pop culture that would say, uh, that, that suggest that... Maybe not this exact brain splitting kind of case that you're you're suggesting, but that but that if you give someone part of a body, then that kind of becomes at least partially that person. So mm-hmm. there are all sorts of like you know uh, transplant cases where oh they got so and so's heart now they're
3: yeah, partially
1: so and so, or that Treehouse of Horrors where someone gets the school bully's hair and then all of a yeah. sudden yeah
0: I was gonna say it's one of my favorite um, genres of horror film or the uh, the the um, <laughs> somehow supernatural psychopath is executed um but they they give his organs to people who are gonna die (laughs) and and then then they become psychopaths every single one of them turns into the same kind of um, murderous killer (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's um you know like the movie gremlins right you 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 get them wet and then you you get a whole bunch of them right Um, (laughs) or is it feeding them after midnight yeah getting them wet reproduces feeding them later makes them evil um (laughs) So this just does both, right? <laughs> you, you Basically, you you do organ transplants and then suddenly you have more. And they kill and you execute them and then you, you get more and, and more.
1: So one final view to take a look at before we turn to a discussion of uh, personal identity in pop culture is a view that you might think of as a, essentially a software view of personal identity. Mm. This is how I like to think of it. So um, you might think that in a, in a certain respect both the soul view and the body view are hardware views of personal identity where there's, there's a, a thing, whatever its nature, mm-hmm. but that constitutes you. Right. So in, in the case of the body, maybe it's the brain, um, or the, a, a more complete, uh, picture of the body as a self. Um, and, and then on the soul view, it's this immaterial thing, but nevertheless, it is that thing, uh, that, that is you it, it, and can be no other. Right. um, so th- this the software view is, is essentially this idea that what you could could potentially run on other hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, uh,
0: Perfect cases sort of involve something like that, except for some of the hardware is going with you. Mm-hmm. But yeah.
1: Okay. So so one such one such software view is the memory view um, mm-hmm. of personal identity, where what makes a person at some later time identical to a person at some earlier time. Is that they share memories in common, so then of course you'd have to make sure that you're, um, you're distinguishing between actually remembering and merely seeming to remember. So you could imagine that uh, uh, um, someone that there's a, a delusional individual who's read Audacity of Hope and comes to have. Uh, to remember the experiences of Barack Obama as their own experiences, mm-hmm. right? Um And so you'd need some view of memory that could distinguish um, actually remembering from merely seeming to remember. And I think, um, there are some ways of doing this. You could appeal to causal mechanisms, like whether the experiences you remember were actually caused by events or there are different ways of going about doing this. One, one of the main objections to the memory view though, of course, is a similar, um, similar objection that we were raising in, in those perfect cases is that um, you could imagine. um, So, so let's take a sci-fi case. I I used to show my classes a video of this, this, but now it's no longer public domain. It's been taken down off the internet. But um, so there's this this mad scientist who's at a fair and he's demonstrating this teleporter, and uh, it's, he's 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 uh, advertising it as this great new way to travel instantaneously, and so this woman walks up and is and wants to see how it works, and so he enters into the to this first door. Mm-hmm. And then there are these two doors side by side. So it's sort of like the vanishing cabinet on Harry Potter. So he enters into one door and then he comes out the other. Um, and so then she wants to view it with the doors open. And so what, what ends up happening, What it's not, well, this is what's open for debate. Is this really a transportation machine? So the the woman and en- or the scientist enters into one door. And what happens is there's like a copy of his, structure that's made by the door. And then that copy is relayed to the other door um, where a a new version of him is, what one might say, a new version of Mm -hmm. him is created. And then after that's done, the old version of him is destroyed. And then later in the video, she says, well, what's, you know, she kind of wants to push the concept a little bit. And so uh, they, they don't destroy the previous versions and make lots of copies. Mm -hmm. Now, all of these um, beings have memories uh have the memories of that prior person and so now you've got um lots of beings seemingly identical at at least
0: right right for
1: a time to to the person at some earlier time Mm -hmm. right and so and that that's counterintuitive because identity is you know a thing can only be identical to itself um and 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 so that's problematic for the memory view. Now, that's a sci-fi case, and so you might think, mm-hmm. why does that matter in the real world? But it's, it's, we're trying to test the boundaries of a concept. And if, if memory really is a one-to-many relation, then it can't capture – it by its very structure, it can't be identity because identity is essentially a one-to-one relation. Mm-hmm. And when I say essentially, I, I mean uh, it, in its essence, right, it is right. a one-to-one relation.
0: Yeah, right. So that's very similar to the the trick that happens in the movie, the the Prestige. Another worry people have about the memory view just has to do with um, beings that that stop having memories for some reason, mm-hmm. but are still alive, right? So Grandma slips into a persistent vegetative state, presumably is having no memories whatsoever, but we want to say. It's still grandma.
1: Maybe we want to say that. I mean, my intuition is it may genuinely be true that at the point at which someone gets dementia, for example, Mm -hmm. they're a different person. Or that a person is no longer the same person they were when they're in a coma.
0: So (laughs) Um, even with the the tricky case where grandma um, sort of makes a habit of going into non-persistent vegetative states. So grandma's grandma, grandma's in a coma for a month, comes out of it doesn't have any memories of being in the coma, but remembers what happened Mm -hmm. just before, remembers 60 years ago. It's grandma again. Um, Then she slips into a state of dementia, um, but then Comes out of it a week later. So you got grandma, not grandma, grandma, not grandma.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. So first of all, I'll say when it comes to all the philosophical topics that I, I like teach my courses or whatever, I think identity is the one about which I'm just like, mm, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, don't, mm-hmm. I don't really have an attitude. But I, um, I think it's a really tough question. Uh, it may just be that identity turns out to be something weirder, a lot weirder than we thought.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, like almost everything in philosophy, yeah, yeah, yeah. or just
1: in life in general. Okay, so um,
0: speaking of software, right? Let's let's talk a little bit about Westworld. Okay. So there, you you gave the sort of memory account of personal identity and said it's it's analogous to software, but there, it very literally is soft world, right? So you've got mm-hmm. these these mm-hmm. now sentient robots, um, and their physical bodies are being destroyed but all of their, um, you know, programming, software experiences, et cetera, is now downloaded into some single chip, right? And somebody in the end of the second season is, is in possession of all this stuff. And that they can now reboot into different physical bodies, which, which happens in at least one case there. Um, currently they're they're all just plugged into some kind of loop in something that's supposed to be um, robot heaven right mm-hmm. uh, with the the exception of, of one character um, so yeah so on on that view something is its software but these are these are creatures that don't necessarily have hardware right some of them are, are placed in physical bodies but some of them are just software that that never got put into a body right it's almost like souls being created in heaven or something. You're
1: demonstrating that you followed Westworld Season 2 much better than I did.
0: <laughs> that, well, you know, um, that's because I, I did a book, Westworld and Philosophy, available at Amazon.com <laughs> oh, right. with, with, uh,
3: with, with
0: with Josh Heater. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we watched it a couple of times and thought about it for a minute. Um, but sort of related to this, um, yeah, you know, the, the prestige case and the, the example you were talking about, I've always thought this about Star Trek, right? There's a lot of Star Trek episodes and all the different incantations um, deal with, with personal identity. But one in particular, just the, the use of the, the transporter, right? So what happens there is they analyze mm-hmm. someone's physical body so it's decidedly anti-dualist mm-hmm. and they reconfigure it elsewhere. Um, and, it, and Star Trek doesn't take this line, right? Um, the, the line they take is, oh yeah, you just beam down to the planet and we'll refigure you up here. But it's it's with different molecules. It's it's different stuff. Um, it, it seems to me that you die when you go into that thing as soon as they turn it on, and then something new is created right. that has all these memories. But if there is nothing to nothing more to personal identity than memories, you can say nope. That's that's you. That's your bundle of memories. Well, but you got the one to many right, problem,
1: right? So that yeah, I I mean I that that's there's a similar problem for like surviving your own death along the, those lines. Like, would it be comforting to you um, if someone said, "Look, okay, you're you're gonna decompose and die, right? And uh, your body will be destroyed, but there will pop up a copy of you in some afterlife." You'd be like, "That doesn't help me,
0: <laughs> right? Right, like, right? That's not." <laughs> Well, I would just think that's a mean thing to do to a copy in my case <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, yeah so there's there's interesting metaphysics that that come up if all you've got to connect persons to later versions of themselves are, are memories um, great existentialist um, themes in the personal identity literature right it, you know it's not I mean the, the very mm-hmm nature of existentialism is to wonder what I am. Um,
1: or, and,
0: right. uh, you know, and throughout time. So I was thinking about the movie Being John Malkovich, right? Which is mm-hmm. a great film. So John Cusack plays this character and he's got this portal that he enters and he, he goes in the portal and it, or through the portal and it takes him into John Malkovich's mind and he sees what John Malkovich is saying, but more importantly, he experiences what John Malkovich is experiencing. And he can get rid of John Malkovich in there Um, to the point where you wonder if he's not at that point for the 15 minutes, you know, per, per session, actually John Malkovich (laughs) or is John Malkovich just non-existent for 15 minutes while Uh somebody else drives the bus, but it's not just controlling the physical stuff. It's feeling the feelings and
1: right i mean if you were if you were in the brain of a person uh driving the car you'd be subject to all of their brain chemistry and their neural pathways it's hard to imagine that you could actually be you while occupying someone else's mm-hmm. brain or what have you yeah
0: yeah and then related to that are all these um so freaky friday shows trade on that um the 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 Two people in one brain genre, right? So maybe um, in addition to the John Malkovich because it's a little weird. Um, <laughs> you think? Yeah, yeah. And, and that, you know, it's not not two people controlling things at once. But think of like the, the Steve Martin, Lily Tomlin movie, All of Me, right? Where somehow she gets dumped in his body there with him, right? And so you hear them, you know, conversing through thoughts, Um but they, they both have control over the body, right? So there's funny scenes where one wants to go left and the other wants to go right. So Steve Martin's doing the physical comedy bit and they're pulling each other. Um, and, it, you know, the, the, the body is his, but only because he's got some kind of ownership of it prior, right? I mean, at the time, there's just two souls, spirits, minds, two persons in one body, Um each able to do what they want to it, right? If, mm-hmm. it, it, it's as if he had dibs, and so by stipulation, it's it, it's his body. Um, yeah, I, I first got exposed to all of this kind of stuff um, as a, a young boy um, with the, the famous Gilligan's Island um, Mad Scientist episode um, where, you know, they, they found some mad scientist on a nearby island. They thought they, you know, had escaped um, the island they were on. And he hooks them up to these machines in his laboratory, and he takes one personality and, and swaps it with another. So I forget who got swapped, but I think it's, you know, the skipper swapped with Marianne, and the professors swapped with, um, you know, Ginger, and Gilligan swapped with Mrs. Howell. And then what's funny about that is is they just... Um, not only does Mrs. Howell's personality go into Gilligan's body, um, so does her voice, right? So, you know, they they've, <laughs> they've, they've got, I haven't seen this episode. Yeah, that's great. They, so, they've, yeah, they've got, um, you know, um, the, the actor's voices coming, um, you know, voice coming out of, you know, Bob Denver's voices coming out of, you know, Jim Backus's mouth, or, you know, however they, they did the <laughs> switching. Um, but, you know, it... It wasn't questioning anything, right? Um, shows like this operate on the assumption that some kind of dualism is true, right. and through science you can extract. Um, and you know, and we might as well give Descartes to. I suspect what what the scientists did is go into the pineal gland <laughs> and, and suck the soul through and put it in the um, the, the other bodies. Okay, so um, maybe just one more of these. I mean, the the, the list is endless. Um, but a really interesting case is Jarvis becoming Vision, right? So this is, is interesting because it's an instance of somebody, well, tell me if I'm right about this, mm-hmm. who doesn't survive change. Are, are we to believe that Vision is not Jarvis?
1: Oh, man, I got schooled on this uh, by a student once, Um and I can't remember what I got wrong and which one is the right thing. I think that he was suggesting to me that uh, Jarvis is not Vision.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. that—that's my take. Is you're, you're okay. supposed to just think something happened to Jarvis, and not only did he change, um, he changed into something else, right? Maybe mm-hmm. what Aristotle would call a hylomorphic change, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, mm-hmm. normally reserved for just you know, you're something, and then you're born, then you die, and then you're you're some different kind of thing. All together.
1: what? What? In what meaningful way did Jarvis? Is Jarvis? In what? I mean, if if we're not understanding that as an identity relation, then like, in what meaningful way is Jarvis part of the origin story of Vision? Um,
4: I mean,
1: know, it would be I, like this chair becoming.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's I just know, the, the, the the same way that you know. Um, Things that happened before we were born are part of our origin stories, you know. Um,
1: okay. Okay. Fair. Fair.
0: So yeah, so there's this guy Jarvis, and then this thing happens to him.
1: But Jarvis isn't even a guy, right? Yeah. No. Yeah, like, Jar- right. Jarvis
0: is software. Yeah. Jarvis um, is,
1: is like Siri.
0: Yeah. But but Jarvis. <laughs> Alexa. I, I thought Jarvis was sentient, although I'm not. I'm not positive about this. I, right? um, you know, the Jarvis is supposed to be. Some kind of really great AI such that, um, that Jarvis has consciousness. We're going to
1: get so schooled.
0: But, but maybe not. <laughs> um, all right. So I'm just, I'm just going to say this, right? They, they, it's Batman, Batman <laughs> Spider-Man, Iron Man, Jarvis, Thorne, the Hunk, all those guys. They're all just the same guy. Bring it on, kids. Bring it on. On that note, let's turn to the interviews. This week, we talked to some students from Utah State University and asked them what they thought about personal identity.
1: Okay, today we're talking to Corey Corey. And Corey, the question we have for you is, do you think we persist
3: through time? And if so, why? If not, why not? So I believe in the age of the internet, a form of us does exist through time and persists. My reasoning for this, uh, the movie SLC Punk portrays... uh, the local counterculture scene of the mid-'80s for Salt Lake City. But it's well-known because all the punks portrayed were upset. Their names were used, but their characters were completely altered. Uh-huh, okay. Uh, most notably, Sean Fightmaster was very upset with his portrayal in the movies, so he went ahead and used the Internet platform as soon as he could get on to put his truth out there and how he perceives himself. And now it's been over a decade since he passed away, but there is an image of Sean Fightmaster that's still, like, able to be interacted with. And you can watch YouTube videos. And uh-huh. like, I was born in mid-90s. There's no reason for me to know Sean Fightmaster, but there is this connection uh-huh. where I have found that form of himself. And I think that's something we all have to be aware of. Like, my kids can go on my Facebook page and talk about how obnoxious I was in high school. <laughs> and they're absolutely right. Like,
1: so it's so like a story or a narrative that yeah, persists there's this that, part that of us that,
3: Yeah, this part of us that will persist, and we have more control over it. But how much control do we really have? Okay, so that's interesting because it's not like
1: an internal, yeah. uh, can, confined sense of self, but like a, a pervasive, eternal internet sense yeah. of self. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, we're talking to Zane Jolly. Hi. Um, So the question we have for you, Zane, is do you think we persist through time? Do you think our identities persist through time? If so, why? If not, why not?
4: I don't think that identity can persist through time in any exact form or in any similarity. I think it rather changes every moment. You are an entirely different and new person because throughout every instant you are feeling different things, different emotions, different things are going on inside of your brain. So I don't think there is a core part of you that can persist identically through time.
1: Okay, so then is there any sense in which you think we can say, uh, we can meaningfully talk about ourselves at some earlier point in time, or are we necessarily referring to someone else entirely?
4: I think a lot of time, like, when people are talking about themselves in the past, they're reflecting on a memory of themselves, and then Mm -hmm. a lot of times they're talking about how they might have learned from a situation Mm -hmm. or done something differently. But I think a, a lot of times, like, you can have an idea of, like, who you were in the past because of memory Uh, but you are not in essence the same person anymore.
1: Okay, great. Thanks very much. Yeah. Okay, we're talking to Jim Miles. (laughs) Jim, do you think your identity persists through time? If so, why? If not, why not?
2: I used to think so but I've recently through the philosophy class I'm taking come to think I don't or at least the personal identity doesn't just because it changes so frequently And if I was to sort a few, uh, I mean, if I was to (laughs) cite a few sources on why I didn't think it was, I'd most importantly cite, I have a grandfather that has Alzheimer's, and I've watched him progress through life, and I remember him being a very different person when I was much younger. And as I've grown up, I've seen a lot of things change, just personality-wise, and i definitely he, he's still my grandfather of course but I wouldn't say he's the same person necessarily it used to be um okay. yeah and from a personal perspective I had the lovely opportunity to be in a uh, near-death experience over the summer and that completely changed my outlook on a few things and just the fact that an experience like that just that something can shock your life so much that it changes your outlook just I don't think there's consistency I did about a 180 completely on my ideals from that, and that's why I'd have to say I just changed too much to, and uh, even in that sense, I wouldn't consider myself the same person I was as a five-year-old, because <laughs> heaven knows, I wouldn't quite love exactly what I'm doing right now.
1: Okay, okay. <laughs> Great. Okay, well, um, thanks very much. Yeah, of course.
0: Okay, Rhett, what are we liking this week?
1: Well, we went and saw two scary movies, which are our favorite, which is our favorite genre. So we went and saw Us and Pet Cemetery.
0: Yeah, both, both really great. Um, my takeaway from Pet Cemetery is, is this um, one, I, I thought it was fantastic. Um, but two, for the rest of my life, I'm going to wonder why do people who have jobs in the big city and everything is going well move out into the country in big homes to unwind a little bit. It never goes well.
1: To spend more time with their families.
0: That's what they always say. I I estimate that at least 75% of all horror films made in the last 10 years start with either people driving to their new country home or unpacking their boxes in their new country (laughs) home, and it just goes downhill from there. Um, I, don't, I don't want to spoil too much about either of these films. Um, th- there's a um, lot of buzz about us. I, I think it's great. Um, probably not um, quite as good as, as Get Out, um, mm-hmm. mostly just because everything gets tied up in the end and the uh, tying things together um, doesn't seem to be up to snuff in the way that the rest of the film is. It's
1: interesting that you should um, bring that up in this particular episode of the podcast. I, I would say, uh, without saying uh, anything specific about how it resolves itself, I would say, uh, think about the, the the notions of identity that we've discussed today mm-hmm. and see if you think any of the notions of identity can make sense out of what's going on in us.
0: Right, right. Yeah, it, and it lots lots of parallels there. So we can talk about this more in a later episode once we're we're past the sort of acceptable spoiler time. Um, pet cemetery um, on the one hand, it's it's you know the book's been out for decades and the original movie came out you know two and a half or three decades ago. Um, so the, the the story's pretty well covered. Um, again, really good, really good performances. Mm -hmm. Um, I left the movie just thinking, man, that was fun. I
1: love anything Stephen King. From
0: start to finish. Yeah.
1: Um, and they did a good job with this.
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Worth mentioning, um, the, we watched the, um, series finale and the last six episodes of the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt the last couple weeks. And um, that show was hilarious throughout. I, I hear that maybe there's going to be a movie. I'd love mm-hmm. to see more from the characters. Um, the, the way it ended up was great. Um, but we just started watching the third season of True Detective, um, and that's really great, and especially um, you know, given how disappointing the, the previous one was. Um, it's nice to see. This week's listener musing comes from Tawny. Tawny writes, I heard about your Ethics Slam where you discuss the ethics of shaming. I wasn't able to attend, but I wanted to put in my two cents worth anyway. I don't see how shaming could, under any circumstances, ever be ethical. What do you guys think?
1: Okay, well, first, maybe we'll say something about what she's talking about. So we do these ethics slams, which are like poetry slams, poetry readings, Mm -hmm. except for that people don't come with prepared remarks, although you might think about the topic in advance. Um, so people show up at a place like that we've arranged like a coffee shop, um, or something. It was a crepery this time. And, uh, they, they, we do an open mic kind of activity where people go around and share their opinions on the topic. And the whole idea is to advance civil discourse with where we're practicing active listening and trying to understand, uh, the person with whom we're conversing and so on. Yeah. And Uh, these
0: have been great events. Um, you know, Lots of people, some, usually more than 100 from mm-hmm. the community, will show up and talk. Mm-hmm. They last a couple hours. And people leave feeling better about themselves than they did when they were being trolled on Facebook. <laughs>
1: right. So this this uh, past week, our topic was the ethics of shaming. And we actually did a couple of um, radio interviews in advance uh, on that topic. Um, and I, I, so my attitude, I don't know. Uh, so So the position here is that uh, that was taken in the musing was that it's never permissible. That's Is right. That right? Um, I don't know. Uh, it, it, so a couple of thoughts on my end, there may be a distinction between the, between uh, shaming as an activity that one does to another and the uh, experience of feeling ashamed um, mm-hmm. and shame. The, the, the feeling of shame might be actually beneficial. It might be a good thing. And as a result Um, it may be the case that making someone feel shame might be a good thing under certain circumstances. So think of like Weinstein, right? Like the the public is saying, look, you deserve to feel ashamed for not respecting how important consent is um, and so on. And, And then Weinstein hopefully responding by feeling shame. So that might be one way in which shaming can be valuable and important for society. On the other hand, I think... Whether, uh, whether shaming as a practice is justified does turn on the question of whether we have free will, because it may be the case that if we don't have free will and no one can ever do otherwise than what they in fact do, then um, the whole practice of shaming and feeling shame is fundamentally unjustified.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of outside that loop. Um, assuming that, that we, we do have free will, um, which is a big assumption because I'm of the opinion that we don't, um, but assuming we do, I'm, I'm inclined to think that certain kinds of shaming are good um, if they yield good consequences. And not every instance of shaming that yields good consequences are good, but there are certain clear-cut cases, right? That Kevin Spacey likely won't work again in the movies, mm-hmm. um, you know, given the sort of predator that he's been. I think that the shaming brought about a great result and is is fully justified.
3: Right.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Tony. That's it. Episode 19 is in the can. It's a wrap. And once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. So our next episode will be from the Pop Culture Association annual meeting. And we're going to talk to a number of different philosophers about things that they're working on in the intersection of pop culture and philosophy. So that that should be good. Looking forward to it. bye